Hello and welcome to today's PropCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and we're talking about the future of housing and I'm joined by a few interesting, really interesting folks this week. We've got a great a great crowd. Uh, we've got Joe Cowan, who's the founder at Joe Cowan Architects and we've got two gentlemen who have not been in the property and construction world for very long. We've got Matt Evans, who's the Chief Technology Officer at Top Hat Modular Housing Business and Matt's been there for a total of seven, eight months and we've got an even more fresh-faced companion than Matt. We've got Paul Budden, who's the Chief Financial Officer at Top Hat. And, and Paul, let's start with you because you've just raced in from McLaren and I'll stress McLaren, the automotive business, not the construction company, not the maker of push tears. Uh, you're, you're very keen to stress that. But how have you found it? You've been here for a total just over a month and a half now. Um, what, what's been some of the challenges? You've managed to find a car parking space, I'm assuming. Well, no, that's been the first challenge, actually, is finding a car parking space. But I have to say we had exactly the same problem over at McLaren. So that's <laughs> nothing new. I, well, it I, happens I just, when your company grows. It's a good problem to have. Absolutely, <laughs> it is, isn't it? You, yeah, there's never enough car parking, park, car parking around. No, for me, it's um, getting to know the industry. I mean, I know manufacturing inside out. And what I would say is that the fundamentals of manufacturing are the same, whether you're making airplanes at Airbus or uh, McLarens at, at McLaren. Uh, but the, obviously, the output is different. Uh, the way you go to market is different. And I'm still learning the industry. I'm only five weeks in. Mm. But you were at McLaren for 11 years. That's correct, um, yeah. And there was a significant amount of growth in that time. Tell us a little bit about your backstory there, what you were doing, and, and, and also why you've come into housing and construction. Yeah, sure. So you're right. I was there for 11 years. I initially started uh, in the automotive business back in 2010. And I was hired at a time when the automotive business was fledgling. It had just been spun out of the McLaren group and it had grand ambitions to start this amazing car company with new products. And the uh, F1 team was doing a little bit better back then as well. And it? the F1 team was, do, it was doing well back then. I do remember the winning races and back then when we won races, everyone came in with the orange t-shirts and we all celebrated. <laughs> um, but then, you know, I was brought in to uh, build the finance function for the new automotive business. Um, and I very quickly then accelerated up through the organization. I was very quickly became responsible for strategy. So I can proudly say that I wrote a lot of the, st- the strategy that went into building the car company, not on my own, I obviously worked with my team and, and my executive colleagues and the rest of the organization. Um, and we built a, quite a fantastic car company over that, that time. We went from no cars in 2010, um, a turnover of 6 million, making big losses back then. And in 2019, pre-COVID, we had 4,600 cars from two new, well, a new one new factory and, mm. and a, a factory building, um, a factory set up building um, carbon fiber monocoques, uh, and made a turnover of 1.3 billion. So it was a, we came a long way in such a short space of time. So many, yeah, many companies in in your space now would be uh, would, would would jump over their own grandparents for those sorts of numbers. Um, and what what was it to convince you then to make the switch? to top hat well you know i decided after 11 years that um enough was enough i mean i think everyone in the room here and people listening will appreciate that there's certain longevity that comes with certain roles when you've seen things a few times over it is no matter how good the the company is and the products are it's just time to uh, to call no it a day how good the hospitality at the moment no matter how good the hospitality and oh, and the company perks are uh, as well from that that well, perspective listeners will be able to hear the tiny violin in the, in the, <laughs> in the edge of your your hearing right now joe cowan tell us a little bit about your business so you run an architecture studio in Chelsea, uh, and you're working with a number of major institutional investors, people like Apache Capital, Goldman Sachs. 
principally on residential schemes and master planning projects. Um, and you've been a big advocate of modern methods of construction. What are, what are you keeping busy with at the minute and how have you seen the market? Thanks, Andrew. The Yes, as a practice, we're predominantly focused on housing in the initial stages um, of the business that was built to rent apartments, multifamily model. And then really having seen so many changes actually in the UK and the requirement for family housing, we went out to the US, we had a look at the single family housing model there, and we identified that that built to rent single family housing um, was actually going to be one of the biggest growth areas in the UK. Like all asset classes or sectors in their infancy, single family was really being perpetuated, you know, by effectively SME developers or investors as opposed to some of the, the larger institutions. So really for us, we fell into MMC because it actually became really one of the only viable ways that we could see to deliver housing in the UK for an SME really because of of how much the house building industry has changed. And actually, there are very few contractors who can build traditionally outside of the house builders, which would require that 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 issue in terms of development profit. So we started to, to look at MMC very heavily. We went out to Japan, to China, uh, to Malaysia, all over Europe, and then really looked at what was happening in the UK. And it was clear that most of the modular product that was coming through was really being targeted the RP and the HA market. And we said, well, hang on, we've got to be able to, to look at MMC and start to evolve it, understand the difficulties that there are with it, understand the constraints and the, and the parameters. But actually, how can we as architects and designers embrace it, take the best from it, particularly in terms of, of what it can do in terms of sustainability and, and start to design bespoke product. And indeed, we're working with Top Hat on bespoke product at the moment for a number of developers. Mm. So Matt Evans, you're, you're, I mean, talking of product, let's bring you in at this point. So you're the CTO, Chief Technology Officer for Top Hat. And previously, a year ago, you were, you were making, uh, well, you were in the aviation world. <laughs> um, so you've come down to earth a little bit. Um, probably yeah. probably not, too, not too unhappy of not being in the aviation world right now. It's a bit of a tough time no, for those I mean, guys. Yeah, you, you certainly have to look at aviation right now and say, I, I kind of dodged a bullet in that respect. But... No, I mean, it's great to be here because, you know, as Joe said, we, we really are tackling an industry with, with housing, especially in the UK, that is just essential. Um, air travel is wonderful. It's been important to the development of, of lots of parts of the world. Um, and it's, of course, we, we love to be able to go on holiday and travel for business. But housing is absolutely at the heart of what, what all of us need. And I, I think cracking that model of figuring out how we can build more housing, how we can make it more sustainable, and how in the end we can also make for beautiful homes and beautiful communities mm. is really what it's all about. And but let, let's get into the nitty-gritty because, I mean, th- those are all great, great ambitions, but but I think they're, they're things that lots of people say. I'm interested about your role at Airbus, where you were before. You were VP for Digital Transformation, um, and that's obviously something that the construction sector, well, they can't even spell digital transformation, let's be frank about it, and they don't even entertain the thought of it. What did that look like at Airbus, and what's it now going to look like in construction? Well, sure. Well, well, let's be honest. Six years ago, we couldn't spell digital in aviation either, so it's not a, not a unique problem to the construction industry. But at least planes tend to not leak and fall apart too often. Not too often, no, but uh, that, that's true. On the other hand, you know, we, we have to make them that way because you can't repair a plane while it's flying. You can do that a bit more easily with the house. Mm. But no, fundamentally, what it was all about in aviation was really making sure that every bit of data, all of the information that we're getting from the process of building the aircraft, of designing it, of, of flying it, that all of that information could feed back and help us learn how to make the next aircraft better. 
It's that process of continuous so improvement feedback loops. learning. A feedback loop, exactly. And at the heart of it, it's about making all of the individuals, all the people that are involved in every step from an engineer designing to a person manufacturing in a factory to somebody that is fueling or maintaining the plane at an airport, that all of them have the information that they need at the exact moment that they need it and information presented in a way that will help them do their job better. Mm. So what did you do then? You created a system from scratch and you, you just harvested information from all points? And, and Well, the exciting part, and that's you know why, why we work, you know why it's great to work with people like Joe in the construction industry, is that at Airbus, we tackled that problem from the industry perspective. You know, I built a platform called Skywise. We ended up connecting about 40% of the aircraft flying in the world to that platform. Because it was only by bringing information together from the airlines that are flying the planes to the companies like us at Airbus that were building them, um, together with those that are providing fuel and parts and everything else that goes into this industry, by putting it all together, you could start to look at the product holistically and figure out how do we save fuel by optimizing air traffic control? How do we improve our designs by listening more to our suppliers and listening more to passengers that are flying on them? And we can take and are taking exactly the same approach with, with construction because in, an er, in a new industry like modular, it absolutely is all about that partnership between the architects, the planners, and the manufacturers as we create the product and as we scale up our manufacturing capacity hand-in-hand hand with people like Joe that are figuring out how to make those homes beautiful and sustainable and the kind of places that we want to live in. So Joe Cowan, tell us then what some of the data points are that would help you and your profession as architects to design better homes. What, what are some of the technologies that sit at the heart of MMC that, that you think could make a real difference here when you're talking about scaling up and being a broader solution to, to some of the challenges the sector faces? Well, I think really, the before answering that in terms of the data points, I think it's important to, to understand how far MMC has actually come in the last decade within the UK, especially with the emergence of, of you know, players in the market like Topat. And I think really, it's it is an automated pro, you know, process. I think in the early stages of modular and MMC, as we've said, there was a lot of traditional sort of building under a shed or under a roof, that's moved massively. And particularly in the last two years, and Top Hat are without a shadow of doubt at the forefront in terms of the technology that they're using. As architects, we've got to understand that there are constraints that we need to work towards and, and with in terms of MMC, particularly modular, less so in panelized. But, and that really is actually the widths of homes, you know, the length of homes, how they're transported to site. But more so than that, it's the technicality of actually, if you are going to lift a modular unit or a house off the back of a lorry, it's the structural stiffening. It's, it's actually where you can make openings and where you can't. So Constraints aren't a bad thing for an architect. We see huge, huge benefits that come in the quality of, of, we talk about really precision engineering, but it's working very, very closely with the manufacturer, understanding what's working and not working within effectively the factory floor, looking at how companies like Top Hat are continuing to evolve and develop their own technologies, understanding those constraints, pushing back, which we do, and then really looking at how we can evolve modular, whether it's bolting you know, modules together to create wider homes, all of which um, need to be considered in terms of planning and in terms of, of sites for housing, mm -hmm. really where we need variety. Mm -hmm. I, know and I think those, and those constraints are really, that, that's, what, that's what helps us drive efficiency in, in our factory. And I think that's a key part of our, of our digital manufacturing process is that I don't think of our line as being limited to only certain types of product. We are absolutely limited by building things in a certain way. But within that space, there's a huge amount of scope for creativity. There's a huge amount of scope for design, 
while still being efficient enough for us to manufacture it at a competitive cost. And one of the things that Top Hat have done, which no one else in the sector have done, which is hugely important in terms of carbon, is they've revolutionized brick in the way that they have worked out a way of 3D printing bricks of any color in any configuration within the factory. And that's, that is huge because there's so much carbon emission in, in, in masonry. Uh, it makes ours very heavy. So for us... And planners get very obsessed by bricks, don't they? Planners get very obsessed by it. And I think, you know, you've just touched on planning, Andrew. You know, I think three or four years ago, we were doing quite a lot of education with planners on what MMC is. Now looking at one of the largest scale allocations we're working on at Worcestershire Parkway, the local authority, the SWDP, are so keen on MMC forming a key part of a new settlement. And and one of the reasons for that is actually the speed to market, the now perceived quality that comes with precision engineering, and the benefits in terms of net zero. And I think MMC isn't the only way to build, but it is becoming a really fundamentally key part of actually how we deliver homes in the UK. Because the volume house builders would say, look, we've got secure supply chains, we've, we've got decades of history of delivery, we can do this stuff more cheaply, we can do this stuff better, we don't need factories, we don't need you guys from McLaren and Airbus coming in and telling us how to do our jobs, look at our share prices, look at the dividends, look at all the money we've been trousering for years. That is basically what they would say, possibly not the last bit. How, how then, you know, from your perspective, Joe, because you, know, you work with, with yep. all sorts of, of players, both traditional and, 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 and modular MMC, how do the two different disciplines sit side by side? Well, I think... Historically, really, and again until the last couple of years in the UK, not very well side by side. And and the house builders have absorbed the vast majority of the contractors in the UK. So actually, the contracting arms have become part. But actually, if you have a look at what Barclays done, and we're working on their modular panels, they are traditional house builders. And they are also developing huge amounts of modular. If you look at LNG, they have always traditionally built as house builders and traditionally, and now LNG, you know, over the last few years have set up their own factories. They've had difficulties like everyone else in the market. But Mm. there are those house builders in the UK who are incredibly important in Mm. terms of the delivery of homes, but who are embracing both and looking at both as opportunities. Uh, uh, And Paul, let's bring you back in to this Obviously, a lot of what you were doing at McLaren was scaling up a manufacturing business. So when you appreciate you're only a few weeks into the role, so we won't, we won't give you too much of a Chinese burn here, but interested in your initial views on this, and you've, you're clearly going to have given it some thought, but this, this challenge then around scaling up delivery here, what needs to happen? Because it's not simply a case of building it and they will come. No, you're, you're quite right there. I guess I've come in from a, an industry or a company, I should say, where we started with nothing and we created a factory. We we had all the trials and tribulations again that factory up to capacity and to the day rates. I come into a business now that already has very successfully started a factory and is in the process of scaling it up, getting those getting those day rates up. And what are the challenges that you, you get in, in doing that? Well, first of all, it's getting your process right. Uh, getting your design instructions, your building instructions right. And you know, I feel that we're a long way at Top Hat to, towards getting that bit done. And then it's bring, also bringing in the labour, getting the people in the factory who know what they're doing, getting them trained, mm. getting sufficient labour to, to do that. And this is a big, big problem in the construction industry, especially not just with Brexit, COVID, but this continued battering that the sector has had. We haven't invested in skills, the the whole vocational training system that's needed just isn't there 
and the people that haven't retired have just buggered off back to Europe, haven't they? And, and this is where, to some extent, building in a factory has an advantage because you don't necessarily need to be a trade in order to build a house in a factory. So we can bring people in from other manufacturing sectors, not necessarily housing. We can bring people in straight out of school and, tra- and train them up to do operations on, on a line to you know, build the walls, build the floors, install the plumbing, install elements of electrics, uh, which means that the, the, the skill shortage that's in the, the wider industry doesn't necessarily affect us building in, in a factory, but also gives us an opportunity to train people, people up, initially building in a factory that could potentially one day go off and, uh, and learn the trade and, and work as a, a tradesman. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, let's be honest, this is, one, this is an essential opportunity for the industry to tackle and, and of course for us to tackle a top hat. At the same time, it's also one of our biggest challenges today because inside of our factory, we face on a daily basis the challenge of trying to blend the world of manufacturing, which is very process-driven. People are used to walking in the door every day of the week and doing the same task all day long On you know, as, as houses move down the line or as cars move down the line or airplanes. We're trying to marry that with the world of construction, which is almost the exact opposite. You're used to showing up on a job site every morning. It might be raining. It might be 40 degrees out. You've got your tools, you've got to get your work done, and as soon as you're done, you get to leave. And that doesn't work at all in a manufacturing line with, with pace and with a, with a steady rhythm. And I think cracking that model, it's at the heart of, of our factory. I'm sure the factories of every other modular manufacturer, we're all facing the same challenge. At the same time, though, boy, when, at, when we crack that problem, it's huge because, Paul, as you said, we're going to be bringing new people into the industry. We're going to be offering people the opportunity to build these skills and fundamentally, by bringing in new people, we're actually bringing capacity to the house building industry. And if you look at the numbers for the past 20 years, that hasn't happened. We can do it. And I think really that comes back to my original point about we fell into MMC as architects because we saw it as such an opportunity in terms of, of delivering homes. And I think it's, you know, we'd all agree, the biggest challenge we're facing at the moment in MMC is actually the capacity that the four or five major manufacturers in the UK can actually output. How many houses can actually come out of us, you know, in a year? And I, I can't see it being much more than three or four thousand homes across all the manufacturers. And I think that scaling up is 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 going to be really pivotal. I, I would think that the opportunity it has for sort of economic benefits locally, what it does for the job market, you know, what it does to encourage people from every walk of life. Uh, you know, to come into to manufacturing where they may not have done so. I think there's there's such advantages there, but we want to try as architects to, to work with people like Top Hat and others in the industry and to promote that, you know, and promote MMC as, as equal, if not better, than a traditionally built house. And Joe Cowan, does the future of housing look more towards the rental market? You talk about the restriction of supply, but in many respects, that's a commercial benefit to developers. Restricting supply if you're selling homes is a good thing so you keep the price high. And I think that's been um, inherently the land banking sort of model of, of mm-hmm. getting consents and waiting you know, to the ideal time. Um, I think for sale is always going to, to be key in this country. We, we have historically, well, owning your own home was, was, was critical, but looking at the changes really in built rent and, and looking at the US who are well ahead in terms of, of that, actually people want the flexibility and we can see the, the built rent single family or the, the family house asset class is growing exponentially. And that would I mean, be a range of Tell us a bit about that because you've been heavily involved in the, uh, the creation of, of one of the leading single family housing platforms that's been recently launched by Apache Capital. 
and you're working on a number of different projects. Tell us a little bit about that and, and how you see this model growing over the next few years. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the first scheme that I could probably talk about really is Eddington, um, which is it's just outside of Cambridge, which is just outside of Cambridge. And the land is all owned by the University of Cambridge. They have had apartments and some large houses that have been built there. It's an amazing uh, suburban, you know, and, and urban extension. But really, they were very excited, the university, by the idea of, of smaller rental homes that formed or extended that offering. And built-to-rent family housing is just that. It's, it's housing that's built and it's purpose-designed for rent. And the model that we are seeing coming forward, you know, the most prolifically really is actually more compact, smaller homes, three-bedroom homes, which suits very well with the MMC market, terracing and density. But really then actually how do we take that MMC product and you create it and we, we talk about livable streets and it's about really the setting and the landscaping and and actually those things about why would people want to live there. But I think working with the manufacturers from an MMC point of view as architects, we are finding there's a real openness to designing homes for rent, thinking about the demographic because that starts to change and, and, and increase the quality of what's coming out and the variety. We are seeing some challenges with it from a townscape point of view, but really that's, I think we're overcoming that more and more. Mm. So and from a, from a design perspective, Matt, this, this, this focus on families that Joe's describing, what does that mean for the way that houses are designed? Because it's not really changed that much over the years. Yeah, well, I, th I think it opens up really a, a, an interesting set of questions that, that are relevant if you're going to be renting the house to, to families for 20 years, 30 years, 40 years or more. Um, because you start to think really about not only how the house is built, but how it's maintained and how it stays livable and affordable and, and robust, frankly, over time. And so it pushes us to do a lot of the things that, that we've been doing in the aviation industry that, that I believe that, you know, certainly a Formula One car companies are doing where, well, where yeah, we start I mean, to monitor planes tend to last attention. a bit longer than formula one cars formula one cars you're lucky if you get around the first lap yeah, but you know in both cases throughout the whole useful life whether it's uh, 300 miles or 30 or 40 years you're paying attention to how the product is performing and but in, in markets, aviation you're building for a relatively fixed lifespan and in housing particularly where we're now focusing on climate risk we are wanting homes to last not for 20, 25 years, but for hundreds of years. And you think about Victorian warehouses, the ultimate sustainable building, reused and reused and reused over hundreds of years. So how can, can what you're doing leap up to those expectations? Well, I, th I think it's, an, it's a really interesting question because you know, the thing that we get in housing that we don't easily get with aircraft is the ability to upgrade. Um, you know, a Victorian warehouse is no longer a warehouse. Now it's flats, now it's loft space, now it's a creative environment. And so I think what we need to pay attention to as builders who are putting houses out there in the ground today that may last, we hope will last for 100 years or more, we need to pay attention and make sure that we're, we're looking at those and how the energy performance is trending, how the building systems, the electrical and the plumbing are performing, and making sure that we, we have that, that digital twin, if you will, or that package of information about how the house was built and what it looks like on the inside. So tell us about that. that. we can so, hand so, over so, to somebody in so 30 or 40 years. digital twin is an interesting concept. So just explain that for some of our listeners that might, might think you're talking about, um, I don't know, something. Something, something from Tron, maybe. If you yeah, know, something like, you know, that. This, this is something uh, out of the Matrix. But because we were talking a little about feedback loops earlier on. So how does this concept 
come together. Yeah, so the idea of a digital twin at, at, at its simplest is, is really what we do in our factory today. And that's making sure that we're paying attention and we're keeping records of each individual house that we build. So we know how it was designed. And even if we, we repeat Sounds the same design. Sounds a bit, bit What are you, you've got little pinhole cameras in the bathroom? No, this... absolutely not. At, at our level as a manufacturer, it really is, is just recording and paying close attention to exactly how we're putting that house together. So it's so the engineering, the, the stress. and The engineering, the stress, the assembly, anything that happened from a supplier or from our own factory, anything that may have been slightly different when it was put in the ground, because we know not every house is identical and they shouldn't be. But the important thing is if you go in 10 years later and you need to upgrade your heating system or you need to come up with an even more energy efficient appliance or, or electrical system, you want the record of exactly how it was built because you need to see how much better is it going to get with something new and how am I going to install it without having to poke through six different walls trying to find exactly the place you need, the thing you need to replace. I think I want to sort of add to that. I think the lessons learned really from, from the house building industry, not not in, in all ways, is really that you know, once product's sold and the family owns it, it's their responsibility. Where it's quite interesting, where MMC sits within the built-to-rent family housing market, is that effectively the developers and investors are holding that product for the next 25, 30, 40 years. So they need to make sure that they're holding product that A, is robust in the first instance, but B, that can actually be upgraded and modified, particularly as ESG comes in in terms of investing and as in environmental targets continually change, you know, over the next, you know, three or four decades. And that is one where we are having a lot of conversations with Top Hat and, and, and others in the industry is actually how do you adapt the homes, you know, and, and how do you bolt on modules later or, or how do you make modifications within it? And how do you make sure that actually sort of, you know, 10, 15, 20 years down the line, you can change those kitchens, you can upgrade, you can take boilers out, you can look at air source. So I think it's that future proofing. But I think from what we're seeing is, is the major MMC providers in the UK like Top Hat are more open to that than actually the traditional construction industry is because it won't be their problem. Really, I mean, in the end, it's all for us, it's all about certainty. I mean, we want people to have great quality as it's, as it's installed, as it goes in the ground for the first time. And frankly, I don't want anybody to be surprised when they open the house up in 10 years because they want to add another another bedroom or you want to upgrade the heating system. I and mean, there's simply no reason for that with the amount of information we have available today. Mm. I mean, interesting. I mean, let's just go back to supply chains because that's obviously something that that has been worrying everybody in the manufacturing arena and, and, and many more people besides over the last few months. Paul, interested in, in your views on this, obviously in, well, in your previous life, the ability to get things, <laughs> well, the ability to make things happen very quickly was the difference between winning and losing. Um, obviously, we're, we're talking about slightly more more time than you'd have in the average pit stop, but but that ability to source materials for its rubber for tires or graphene for bits of cars that has been a challenge in in construction over the last year or so prices have been soaring your ability as a as a manufacturing company to source those materials and to manage that supply chain to bring everything together just in time is a critical element of success you know, one of the big differences between the automotive industry that i was in and the 
industry I'm in now is the maturity of the supply chain. In automotive, there's a 30, 40, maybe 50-year mature supply chain there for supply and just in time. That doesn't really exist within the construction industry right now. Why not? Uh, well, Construction's been around for a while. But traditional tradition, for longer than cars. But traditional build has always been about building uh, on a building site, delivering to a building site, not delivering uh, a, a regimented number of uh, materials to a factory on a daily basis. Right now, what we have to do, and one of the challenges, going back to an earlier question you made, so on top of getting the people to um, be able to build within the, within the factory and getting the labour in there, uh, we've also got to work on maturing our supply chain and, and getting the, the materials we need in the factory at the right time on the right days. You know, we can't have a radiator or a window five days late to our factory. You can cope with that on a building site. You can't cope with that in the factory. I mean, just just in time, in the end, is a, it's a partnership between a manufacturer and and their suppliers. And I think the challenge in construction is you have hundreds of developers, but behind them you have thousands and thousands of regional and local subcontractors that are actually doing the work. And there's no way that you know a Travis Perkins or Saint Gobain or anybody else is going to be able to create that just in time partnership with seven thousand different plumbing contractors across Britain. This is a, a, a fundamental kind of topic to come onto. Really, is the supply chain. I think one of the things that also needs to be acknowledged is MMC in the UK and is still in its infancy. You know, we had a push on prefab in the 70s that put into that pretty quickly. And then really the whole market's been slightly dormant, very much dominated by the house builder models, you know, that have come through. I think the other thing that needs to be remembered is because it is still a sector that's in its infancy, the scrutiny in terms of certification, in terms of BOPAS, in terms of, of warranties, is actually much higher. So the supply chain isn't simply, if, if I can't get the radiator there, I'll go there, or, you know, I, can, I won't buy the windows from Shuka, I'll buy them from Velfac. We've got to make sure, Topad has to make sure that actually those windows are certified and will perform against the certification progress. So you've sort of got three levels. And and I don't think Brexit's helped in terms of, of supply chains, particularly from Europe. But what I'm hoping is it's going to promote a lot more manufacture back in the UK. And I think, you know, that certification process has been hard. And I think the other aspect that's hard is getting effectively banks and lenders to lend on product that isn't on the ground in sight, because effectively, you know, it's off site. So that's, that's been a big challenge, which we've started to see now really change. Um, and certainly being massively promoted by people like Goldman Sachs, who've obviously had such a crucial role in, in the growth of Top Hat. And Matt, tell us a little bit about one or two of the projects that you're currently working on. One of the one of the more prominent ones is, is partnership with Urban and Civic. That's uh, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, that's a the, that's a great project. So we're working with them on on the slivers in rugby. Um, so it's a project that's just wrapping up now. It's it's 38 homes, um, really lovely lovely homes, and sort of a you know I would say sort of a, a contemporary traditional look that's right in the middle of a of a very large development that they're putting through in Holton several thousand homes over time um and that was a great example as as we talked about earlier of really working with a developer directly um so that they could source exactly the product that they wanted with the right brick colors the right patterns the right kinds of windows and and upgraded kitchens and and these beautiful design features that you know that make these homes. Well, they, they are modular, which is great because they're wonderfully sustainable. But they're also single story gorgeous. modules, aren't they? But I mean, and also uh, uh, Urban and Civic and their partners, Aviva Investors, they've they've got pretty strict sustainability criteria. Absolutely. And part of the rationale for bringing Top Hat in is is to really support that and enable that. 
Yeah, I mean, we're, we're, we're delivering homes to them that are close to zero embodied carbon. And that means those homes are going in the ground with almost no carbon, carbon dioxide emissions from, from our manufacturing, from our supply chain, and from the materials in the house. Mm. It's a huge win for them. And as well, they're working directly with us. So there's nobody else that they're paying development mm. profit to. I want to quickly touch back on, on something in terms of net zero carbon. With the houses and the way we're designing them as architects, it's not just about the net zero carbon on the day it's delivered. It's how can we design homes that operate with less electricity? So people not turning lights on because rooms are orientated in the correct way. People not putting cooling on because windows and and apertures have been designed properly. Looking at cross ventilation, looking at light and depth, all of those things we're thinking about. It's not just on day one it's built. How are we going to help Mm. and promote people living more sustainably? yeah, Yeah, it's the operational um, net zero that we're really, really keen on. And I think we'll become very relevant actually as, as the asset class grows more and, and as it can be shown that houses that are built through precision engineering are outperforming their traditional rivals, you know, in every, in every yeah. scenario. Yeah, we, we love to see that our, you know, our as-built energy performance, when we actually measure the house in the field, we're usually outperforming our designs mm. because the assumptions we make about building, we're exceeding those standards in our mm. factory and on-site. And I believe that the consumer in the future is actually going to start looking at the carbon emissions coming from the house from a, an environmental perspective, not just a cost perspective as well, because ESG is only growing in a, as a concern across everybody. ESG investments is a really interesting mm. one. Uh, you know, if you have a look at what's going to be coming in from Europe in terms of ESG investment, I mean, I think it's something like $7.6 trillion um, yeah. coming into the UK as opposed to three years ago when it was probably two or three. I don't know the exact sort of, you know, but it, it's been a huge change. And I think the other thing is, whereas four or five years ago, you know, sustainability was seen as a little bit of a bolt-on, inherently everyone, particularly with COVID, has become so conscious of the future of their children. You know, David Attenborough's done a huge part. And I think actually we're all environmentalists at heart, really. And actually people do care more and more. You look at the electric vehicle market, you know, it's it's expanding faster than anything else. The problem is we haven't got enough electricity to put the entire country on, on electric vehicles. Mm. But look, anybody wanting information on the EV market or, or indeed on fast cars or, or probably push chairs as well. Give give Paul Budden a call. He's, he's, <laughs> he's waiting for you. But thank you very much, everybody. Fascinating discussion on performance. Very much, uh, very much take your point, Joe, on ESG and, and investment. And, and actually, that could be the perfect storm that the whole MMC arena has been waiting for over the last few years. So thank you to Joe Count from JCA. Thank you to Matt Evans and to Paul Budden from Top Hat. Please do subscribe to PropCast. Um, anyone with any other views on the future of housing, do please get in touch. You can subscribe on Spotify, on Apple. Please leave us a review telling us whether you love or hate it. I've been Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you soon.